Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. This morning we are finishing up our series in Ancient Encounters, and we are doing so by looking at the most familiar story in the book of Daniel. In fact, it is one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible, one that you no doubt have heard multiple times if you grew up in church. You've heard it in children's Sunday school. you heard it, if not seen it, enacted in some way during one or more vacation Bible schools. And because we all know the ending to this story, it makes it a little more difficult to tell. Because we already know the end, we miss the, the dilemma that builds up. We miss the anxiety that takes place over the course of an entire night or We don't bother to question whether or not Daniel is going to be delivered because we already know the answer. Furthermore, it's difficult for us to go beyond the basic story. Maybe we think about the moral charge that comes from it to to be like Daniel. Perhaps in one of the most overused sermon titles, uh, everybody's heard a sermon on dare to be a Daniel. And so we talk about the faithfulness that he exhibited and how we ought to follow suit. But we need to go beyond that because as we've tried to explain throughout this series, we are not primarily looking at a character in the Old Testament, but we are looking at how God encounters that character. So as we see Daniel in the lion's den, we need to go beyond the mere story and see what God does here. It is very similar to another famous story in the book of Daniel, that is his three friends in the fiery furnace. In Daniel's case, Darius is now the king. You may remember Belshazzar in another famous incident had the handwriting on the wall and so now Belshazzar is off of the scene. He is no longer alive and Darius is now the king which does bring us a little bit of problem because outside of the Bible, we do not have any evidence of this king. No text states that Darius was king during this time frame, though there was a Darius much later. It is possible that he could have been a governor under Cyrus. Cyrus was known, especially during the early years of his reign, to institute governors under him while he was dealing with other things throughout the kingdom. It is also possible that Darius is a title for Cyrus. Or it is possible that he simply has two names, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. In fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 28, it says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. That conjunction there can actually be translated something like, that is or even, meaning that it is possible that he is named both. At any rate, the king is not the most important figure in this encounter. For that matter, Daniel is not the most important one either. Again, we've tried to focus on God throughout these encounters, and that, that is why all of our sermon titles have been God's something. 
And so this morning, we are talking about God's creatures. Because in this story, we are going to see that God is sovereign. We've seen that throughout. But we are going to see that God is sovereign even over his creatures. And that God is going to use animals not only to bring deliverance to Daniel, but he's going to use those same animals to bring judgment upon those who tried to kill Daniel. Now, I'm not going to read all of this encounter. As we've seen, chapter 6 in Daniel is 28 verses long. But I am going to read selected verses throughout each point that we are looking at this morning. So I want you to keep your Bibles open. And I want you to resist the temptation to read ahead. Remember, you already know the ending. So don't sit there and read ahead. Wait for me, and we'll read selected verses while I summarize some others. We're going to start with the first four verses where we see that promotion leads to jealousy. That is, the promotion of Daniel to a position of prominence is going to lead to jealousy for those who thought they should have had it instead. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a, gr find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Now you recall that last week we were in the book of Jeremiah. And we were looking at the call of Jeremiah or the commissioning of Jeremiah. And I told you then that Jeremiah's major ministry, the bulk of his prophecy was going to be about the southern kingdom of Judah and how they were going to be conquered and taken captive and deported by the Babylonians. Even as the northern kingdom had suffered that same fate by the Assyrians, Jeremiah kept saying that unless you repent, the same is going to happen to you. And of course, they did not. So now we have moved forward in history. And Daniel is in Babylon, one of the individuals from the first wave of deportees from Jerusalem exiled in Babylon. We know that Daniel left in the year 605 B.C., nearly 20 years before the eventual destruction of Jerusalem in 586. But by the time of this incident in chapter 6, Daniel is a much older man, probably around 80 years old, which means he has been in exile some 500 miles away from Jerusalem for the bulk of his adult life. He probably went as a teenager, and now at the age of 80, he has spent nearly all of his adult life in Babylon, all of which makes his continued faithfulness to God in the face of persecution all the more commendable. I mean, Daniel could have blamed God. Daniel could have resented God. 
Daniel could have concluded that I'm so far away from home and God doesn't see what I'm doing that I can live any way I want. But that, of course, is not the Daniel we see in this book. Now, with the new kingdom and with a new king comes new structure. And so the king appoints these 120 satraps to rule over parts of the kingdom. That word satrap, and who knows whether I'm pronouncing it right or not, but it means protector of the kingdom. That is, these were men who were appointed to rule over various portions of the kingdom on behalf of the king for security purposes and, of course, to collect taxes. Now, over these 120 satraps, the king has appointed three commissioners, three supervisors, or three presidents, as the ESV and others have it. And the idea here is to make sure these three men are going to make sure that the 120 are not skimming off the top, that they're not taking some of the revenue for themselves. And Daniel is one of these three. So he's one of the three that is put over the 120. And of course, as we know, Daniel has excelled in this new position, as we would expect. So much so that the king has now decided to appoint Daniel even higher than one of these three. Daniel is going to be basically the second man in control. He's going to be just under the king and everybody else is going to report to him. It's ironic that Daniel achieves a position even beyond what Belshazzar had promised him. And Daniel is going to be second in command. But you know that a promotion in this sense, means a demotion for these other two men. Daniel was one of three, and now he has been elevated above them so that they have, in essence, been demoted, and they are none too happy about it. Corporate America is still filled with this kind of jealousy. When someone gets promoted, while another gets overlooked. And invariably, someone else believes that they deserve the promotion more so than the person that did get the raise and the promotion. Now, sometimes, of course, they are right. Sometimes positions do go to family members rather than the most deserving. Sometimes promotion do go to friends rather than the person who really earned the promotion. But sometimes it's simply a matter of the right person did get the job, but others simply have a higher view of themselves than management does. Now you can tell what these other men thought of Daniel when you look at verse 13. In verse 13, they call him one of the exiles from Judah. I remind you that Daniel has lived in Babylon now for probably 60 years and they still refer to him as one of the exiles from Judah. He is a foreigner, and they do not want to answer to a foreigner, nor do they want to have a foreigner ruling over them. And so like any good politician, they decide they're going to take their competition down. And in order to do that, they're going to dig up some dirt on Daniel. Again, we still see this in every election cycle in our nation that one candidate is going to find some dirt on another candidate. They're going to dig out some skeletons from the closet, as we call them, and that's even easier to do now with all of the internet that we have. And so the social media makes it much easier to find these skeletons and bring them to view. No, no one running for high office is immune 
And sadly, we are seeing the exact same tactics done in the election for our Southern Baptist Convention president, which will take place in a couple of weeks in California. We're seeing the very same things as we elect someone to, to head our denomination that we see when it comes to our nation. Now, sometimes a candidate is forced to withdraw their candidacy. They are forced to quit because of the dirt that is dug up and their reputation is destroyed. And so these men look for some flaw in the character of Daniel, some issue that they can bring to light, some professional ability that he is lacking, but none of that is found. Look again at verse 4. What a great testimony. They found no ground for complaint or any fault. Why? Because he was faithful. What a tremendous thing. Wouldn't that be great if it could, all, it could be said likewise of us? All of these years in a foreign nation, no hint of corruption, no dent in his character. Now there is one thing that they know they can get him on, and it is his religion. They know him to be devout, so devout that he will not compromise his conviction for anything, even if he might be facing death. Again, what a great testimony. Again, what if that could be said of us? The only thing anybody can charge us with is being completely faithful to our God. And so the trap that they come up with is that they're going to come at him for his Christianity. Daniel's was not a closet Christianity. It was not a cultural Christianity that bowed to whatever the whims of society was. It certainly was not a casual Christianity. Daniel's Christianity was committed. He was part of his culture, but he was not affected by his culture, and that is a hard balance to achieve. And so the only way they could get to him was to trap him, to force him to make a choice between his religion, his God, and the laws of the land. Would he obey God above obeying the king? Of course, the book of Acts tells us what we do in these cases. It says very clearly, we must obey God rather than men. We are commanded to be obedient to our government, but not when that government oversteps and charges us to do something that God has commanded us not to do. And the same was true then. And so Daniel is going to be faced with a choice. And we know that he's going to make the right choice, even if it means death. And so they talk it over among themselves. They come to the king. They do like any group does. That is, they make it sound like there are more people with them than there really are. You ever had somebody do that? They come to you with a complaint and they say, we. You say, well, who's we? Well, I don't know. It's a bunch of us. But they really don't know how many. And these guys are doing the same thing. Remember, these 120 satraps are deployed throughout the entire kingdom. Most of them have absolutely no idea what's going on with Daniel, except for these two commissioners or supervisors and perhaps some of the local satraps, but they make it sound as if all of them are in agreement. So they have this jealous plan, this jealous plot. They butter up the king and tell him to make a decree. And what king wouldn't enjoy this? King, make a decree that no one can bow down to anybody over the next 30 days except you only, no other king, and certainly no God either. Not wanting to disappoint his officials, he makes the decree. And now they think they, think they found Daniel's weakness. 
prayer. But actually what they think is Daniel's weakness is Daniel's strength. So how is Daniel going to respond? Well, secondly, we notice that prayer leads to charges. Let's look at verse 10. In verse 10, we hear these words. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God and prayed, I'm sorry, three times a day and prayed and gave thanks as he had done previously. So the jealous plot has been conceived Daniel knows about it, so what is he going to do? He is going to pray like he has always prayed, and this prayer is going to lead to charges against him. Now, we might say to ourselves, why didn't he just pray in secret? Why did he have to have the curtains open so everybody could see? After all, doesn't the Bible tell us to pray in secret? Doesn't Jesus himself say that when you pray, go into your prayer closet so no one can see you and there pray to your father? Jesus does in fact say that. But in that case, he was dealing with hypocritical prayer. That is prayer that is prayed in order to be seen by others. But that of course is not Daniel's problem. We might justify and say, well, he could forego prayer for a month. After all, wouldn't that be the greater good? If Daniel simply doesn't pray for a month, he can live a long life and continue to minister and affect the society around him. No big deal. I mean, he's not being asked to bow down to an image like his three friends were earlier in the story. Daniel could rush to the king and protest. This law is unfair. Or he could complain about the law and just criticize the king and others. But what does Daniel do? He simply does what he's always done. He prays. Now, there was no biblical command to pray three times per day and to do it facing Jerusalem, but that was his habit. Solomon had predicted in 1 Kings chapter 18 that there was going to come a time of of, uh, deployment, a time when they would be exiled. And in that time, he urges them to pray and face Jerusalem in expectation that God was going to bring them back. And Daniel was following this prediction. It wasn't a command, but it was a prediction. And in following this, it is a sign of Daniel's hope that God is going to bring them back, that God is going to deliver them and return them home. Again, that's amazing faith after all of these decades in captivity. Now let me ask you, how much would it impact your life If someone said to you, you are not allowed to pray to God for the next 30 days, what kind of impact would that have? And sadly, I think many of us would have to say that it would have a minimal impact. And that just testifies to the fact that prayer is not a large portion of our walk with Christ already. Our next Sunday school unit is going to focus on prayer. And I hope and pray that that unit on prayer will encourage all of us in our prayer lives to have a stronger daily discipline. Now his foes, like little children, are waiting around the corner, peering into his window to catch him in the act. And that is what they do. Then they run to the king and remind the king of his injunction. This law cannot be revoked. In fact, the law not only cannot be revoked, but it must be enacted before the end of the day. 
And they remind the king this, that Daniel has disrespected the king. This was not an accident. Daniel has done this deliberately, multiple times at that. Now the king is upset. But he's not upset with Daniel. He's upset with these who have plotted against Daniel. He's probably upset with himself because he realizes what these men have done and the position that they have put him in. And so he decides he's going to try to find a loophole in this law in order to save Daniel. The king actually wants to deliver Daniel himself from this dilemma. And so he spends the day trying to find a loophole, and there is no loophole to be found. And again, here is where the drama is at its highest suspense, if we don't know the ending. Will God save Daniel? That's really one of the tremendous questions in this story. Will Daniel pay the ultimate price of death for his commitment of daily prayer? These, his prayers that have brought these charges against him. And so what's next? Well, there's a verdict. And this verdict leads to fasting. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then the king commanded... And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him." The king has a verdict against Daniel. The prayer has led to charges, and now the verdict has led to fasting. Daniel is thrown to the lions. But look at the words that the king says as he's throwing Daniel to the lions in verse 16. The King James Version and the New American Standard make verse 16 a prediction that God is going to deliver Daniel. The ESV from which I've read and others make it more of a, not necessarily a prediction, but a prayer. May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. This is an interpretive issue because the, the form of the words there can be translated either as a prediction or a prayer. But either way, given his pagan background, I, I tend to think it's a, it's a prayer, including his subsequent statements in verse 20. But the king is the one who has a restless night. No food, no entertainment, no sleep. Just tossing and turning, worrying about Daniel. A night of an emotional roller coaster. Now we of course know fasting spiritually as the forsaking of food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. Fasting of course is popular again these days, not for spiritual purposes, but for dietary purposes, for health reasons. People are on fasting diets where they don't eat for certain time periods of the day. Of course, when we see the fasting here of the king, it was not for spiritual purposes, and it was not for health purposes. He had simply lost his appetite over what he had allowed to happen to Daniel. But the king is not the only one fasting, right? Who else is fasting? The lions. The lions aren't eating either. Not because they don't want to, 
These kings of the jungle, as we call them, are not prone to turn their eye from an easy meal. But God has shut their mouths. God has seen to it in his sovereignty over his creatures that these lions cannot touch Daniel. This is the work of God. This is certainly the, the high point, or almost the high point, of this encounter. God demonstrating his power over his creatures in order to protect Daniel and to preserve him. Now, we are not told what Daniel does during the night, other than the fact that he is not alone. Which leads to my next point, and that is that there is an angel here that leads to deliverance. Look at verse 19 and following. Then at the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Remember, he's been tossing and turning all night, wondering what's going to happen. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Here is the heart of the encounter. This is why this is included in this series. Though I acknowledge it's a little bit different than most of the others. Again, there's no dialogue here. There's no conversation between God and Daniel that we know about. But God is present with Daniel in the lion's den. Now, of course, the word angel is used here. So certainly it could have been an angel, a messenger from God, which of course is enough to call this a divine encounter. But it is also possible that, he, that this is more than that, that the angel is perhaps another theophany. Remember, we used that word a couple of weeks ago, a visible manifestation of the divine presence. I mentioned at the outset the other famous story in Daniel of the three friends thrown in the fiery furnace. They too were miraculously delivered, so much so that when they were pulled from the furnace, they didn't even smell like smoke. But when the king, a different king, comes to them that day, he looks into the fiery furnace and he doesn't see three people walking around, he sees a fourth. And he says of the fourth that he is like a son of the gods. Now remember, that's a pagan king making that statement. So I'm not claiming that that pagan king looks into the fiery furnace and says, that's a theophany, that's Jesus Christ come in the flesh. But in hindsight, that is what we believe it to be. And the same may be true here with Daniel. He may have spent the night not alone in the lion's den, but with Jesus in the lion's den. Now, the fact that this was a miracle and not just a case of lions who already had full stomachs is seen with what happens after that. The men who had charged Daniel and their families are thrown into the den of lions. Now, I realize that seems rather harsh for us, their whole families being killed. 
but those who made false accusations against someone else would be punished by the same fate and their families were likely included so that there would be no one around to retaliate years later. It was indeed a cruel way to die, but it also shows once again that God was in command of these lions. He shut their mouths to protect and preserve Daniel, but he opens their mouths to devour those who had charged Daniel. He uses his own creatures to bring deliverance to Daniel and to bring judgment against those who had charged him. And then our story ends with a new decree leading to praise. Look at verse 26. The king says, I make a decree that in all the earth, that all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Remember, this is a pagan king. This is not a prophet. This is not a preacher. This is not a believer. And yet he issues a decree throughout all of his kingdom. And he calls Daniel's God the living God in, in comparison to dead idols because Daniel's God has the power to deliver. He calls Daniel's God our God, an eternal God, because his kingdom and rule will know no end. I remind you that the common belief at the time was that when one nation was conquered by another, that meant that the God of the conquering nation was the more powerful God. After all, he had led his people to victory. So these miraculous events that we see in the book of Daniel during this time of exile are meant to encourage his people to remain faithful while at the same time demonstrating to the pagan nation that God was using to bring judgment to his own people that God was still a living and active and powerful God and thus the true God. God's creatures, in this case I'm talking not about the lions, but I'm talking about people are commanded by a pagan king to praise the living God. And what a tremendous statement that is. And that command, not by Darius, but by God, is still in force. We being his creatures, especially we being creatures who claim to know and love God, are commanded to praise him. The Bible tells us that if we refuse to praise God, even the rocks will cry out his name. I urge you not to let rocks do that in your place. Give God the praise that he deserves for delivering you. Now again, throughout this series, we've tried to move forward. There is only one reference to Daniel in all of the New Testament, which is an amazing statistic, isn't it? I mean, as prominent as Daniel is, and as much as we know about Daniel from the Old Testament, only one reference. Jeremiah had three, and we thought that was a bit strange, but Daniel only has one. It's found in Matthew's gospel, the 24th chapter, a portion of the gospel that we call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is talking on the Mount of Olives. He's teaching. And in that, he refers to Daniel's abomination of desolation. That's the only reference to Daniel by name in all of the New Testament. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that through faith, the mouths of lions were stopped. No doubt that refers to Daniel. 
We need to understand that even as God was able to deliver Daniel and the exiles that were in Babylon, God can deliver us. We too are exiles in a foreign land. Now that does not mean that he is going to miraculously deliver you from any and all obstacle that you face. I just referenced Hebrews chapter 11, how God stopped the mouths of lions. But right after that, we read that some were stoned. Some were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. So God is able to deliver as he did with Daniel, but that does not mean that God is always going to do so. But ultimately, we know that he will deliver his people, us, from our greatest enemy, and that is sin and death, so that we will abide with him forever. Our God can and does save us from certain death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to face trials. He promises to be with us in those trials. He uses those trials to sanctify us. But ultimately, we do have the promise of deliverance. So our salvation does not hinge on us daring to be a Daniel. There are some great qualities in this man that we would do well to to follow. But our salvation doesn't hinge upon that. Our salvation hinges on the fact that Jesus has already conquered sin and the grave and been resurrected and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And we, by faith and trust in him, will also conquer sin and the grave and abide with him forever. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for our own deliverance, that you through Christ have delivered us from our greatest enemy. And that should result in us giving you praise. Not only today, not only this week, but throughout all of our lives and for all eternity. May we be people of praise that praise you for our own deliverance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.